Do keep your Bibles open at Luke, 11, uh, Luke 9, and I'll lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your life-giving word, that it reveals you, that through it we know you. Thank you that you've spoken it. Thank you that you continue to speak it as it's been written down, as it's been read out, and as you speak it into our hearts today. Do that great work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who am I? A little bit of an interactive start to the Bible talk this morning. Uh, you can call out the answer. Okay, one Marvel fan. Chris Hemsworth. Yay, that's excellent. Uh, here's the next, who am I? Uh, here's the next one, a little bit trickier. Jermaine Greer, writer and feminist. Now, here's one. Ooh. Mitch Moses, halfback for the Eels. But wait, here's another one. Nathan Cleary, halfback for the Panthers. Now, some of these people will make a difference to your life. Others, uh, sorry, they don't make any difference to your life. Others do even if we don't particularly think about it or haven't even met them. Uh, I'll let you decide from those which is which for you. Uh, but the stakes are far higher as we come to Luke 9 today, at this moment when the who am I question was on Jesus' lips. What we're looking at today, as I said a little bit earlier, it's like a mini climax in Luke. It's our last passage from our series in Luke 1 to 9, with good reason. Uh, as you cast your mind back through the chapters that have passed, do you remember what Jesus said and did throughout those chapters before here? Here's a bit of a highlights reel. Uh, just how strongly, sorry, I'll get to the highlights reel in a moment, but think about how strongly they draw upon the saving events and promises of the Old Testament that came before Jesus. Episodes like his baptism and passing through the temptation in the wilderness and setting his agenda as proclaiming the good news of Isaiah. When he taught the people uh, in a way that amazed them with authority and even claimed authority to forgive sins. Think of the time where he established the 12 apostles to replace Israel's failed leadership and preached a radical, other-person-centred love. Think of the time that he healed and even brought the dead back to life, and when he put his finger on how he wanted people to respond by faith. As we come through the highlights reel now, most recently in chapter 9, just in the passage before what was read for us, He's multiplied his preaching and healing ministry by sending out the 12. And when they return, as Jesus feeds the 5,000 from just five loaves and two fish, as the people needed something to eat, and throughout these, and culminating, I guess, in that feeding of the 5,000, they are all reminders of the great escape that had shaped Israel's existence the exodus, the exodus, part of which we read about in Exodus 16, of when the Lord through Moses led and fed the Israelites in the wilderness. At this moment, when the who am I question was on Jesus' lips, the, the answer is more important than anyone else 
who has ever lived because of the identity he lays claim to and the mission he says he's come to complete. Remember too, it's not just the disciples who are being asked this question. They they may have been asked it first, but as it's recorded here, he asks every one of us, who do you say I am? There are three uh, unfolding parts here, uh, verses 18 to 22, the Saviour's identity and mission. Uh, Verse 23 to 27, the Saviour's summons. Uh, Verses 28 to 36, uh, the Saviour's mission and identity. Uh, And that'll be our outline for today. Come to verse 18 then, uh, and alone with Jesus' disciples, Jesus asks, who does the crowd say I am? Now, I don't know if you recall, but Luke has recorded more than one time that this question has come up on the lips of the people who meet Jesus. In Nazareth, uh, his hometown, they were asking, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is he? Uh, or the Pharisees, when, they, when he forgave the paralytic sin, asked, who is this who blasphemes against God? Or John the Baptist, he wanted to know whether Jesus was the one uh, God had promised or to wait for another. And Herod here in chapter 9, having killed John the Baptist, asks, who then is this? Actually, Herod's wondering sets up what happens in our passage today. He'd heard the same uh, opinions as the disciples. You can read back over that in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 9 but let's read through what the disciples report to Jesus in 9 verse 19 they replied some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and still others one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life and it's clear that Jesus is having such an impact that the news about him is spreading, that people want us to make sense of who he is and work out how important he is to their lives. And the crowds have given him a great rap, wouldn't you say? Uh, One of the spokesmen of God from the Old Testament, that's what the prophets were. John the Baptist, like the last and greatest of those. Elijah, the greatest one from the Old Testament in Israel's history. But then Jesus turns the question and he says in verse 20, but what about you? Who do you say I am? So the first question was a bit, you know, it was a bit academic, wasn't it, for the disciples? Uh, What are other people saying? Here now, he makes it personal. Who do you say I am? And it's Peter who answers God's Messiah. Now, I can't help but think, uh, in God's good plans, that Luke has put this question here for those who haven't thought it, uh, thought of it for themselves yet. That this is the question we have to answer. And so keep that in mind as we read on. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter's answer, 
is God's Messiah. And and Jesus doesn't deny it, does he? Uh, God's Messiah had been promised since way back in the time of King David, but one greater than King David would come. Messiah is the Hebrew way of saying it. Christ is the Greek way. But both mean anointed one, as in God's chosen king. The Messiah, long promised, uh, ruler and rescuer of not just God's people, but of all who would trust in him. And as we've seen the chapters of Luke uh, leading up to here, if you think of the Old Testament as building up one of those, you know, those sort of identity kits that they use to find someone who's missing or to find someone who can assist them with their inquiries, uh, the Old Testament has built up this identity kit of what this Messiah will look like so that you can keep your eyes open and recognise him when he's in front of you. And Jesus matches that picture time and time again. Now, here in Luke 9, for the first time, the word Messiah has been spoken to Jesus by one of his own followers and with his identity on the table so clearly, he turns to what he's come to do, his mission. Referring to himself as the Son of Man, and notice the way he puts it, he must do these things. We read from verse 22. And Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, having just had the word Messiah on Peter's lips, this, this is not the script the disciples would have written for Jesus. They, like the religious leaders Jesus mentions, were expecting a triumphant Messiah, not a suffering Messiah, not one who would be rejected by those who were meant to lead people to him, and certainly not one who would die. And yet, at such a climactic moment as this, this is what he says he must do. Jesus doesn't decide his own mission. It's given to him. And at its heart is our greatest need. A relationship reversal. Where our pride and abandonment of God and replacement of God with counterfeits in the place of the true God brings suffering and judgment and death on all. And so Jesus' mission was long planned to bring that reversal. It was revealed long before in the law of Moses and on the lips of the prophets. He must die in order to win the rescue God offers us. He must die so in eternity we need not. He must die so our sin might be forgiven. He must die to achieve an even greater exodus than the great exodus itself. But this exodus will be for us from slavery to sin and death to freedom and life as God intended us to live with him. 
without Jesus' suffering, without his death, without his resurrection, none of that would be possible. And here is Jesus telling his disciples before it happens so that when it happens, they would know it happened according to plan. What we read next is, is this whole question of how do you respond uh, to the Saviour whose identity and mission is before us. And what we read next is the Saviour's summons. And as I read this again, certainly he says it to his first disciples, but doesn't he likewise say it to you and me? From verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now a disciple is someone who follows a teacher. A disciple of Jesus follows Jesus as their teacher and leader. But what does he summon his disciples to do? As he must fulfil his mission, we have a mission too. Uh, and shaped by his. We must deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. What does that mean, though? Because the first thing I notice, and it seems, is that it seems pretty unappealing to take up a cross. Uh, you, you may well know Jesus' death on the cross wasn't a one-off in the Roman world. It was well, a well-worn instrument of torture and death. Once you took up your cross, you were already condemned to death. You were as good as dead. You had no further life of your own to live. And on top of that, do it daily, every day. That is not a message that you're going to see from central marketing anytime soon and yet Jesus is summoning us to an incredible privilege in a way to do what he was willing to do for us, deny himself, take up his actual cross and suffer and die for us. Look again at from verse 24. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Now, he's not saying uh, we'll save ourselves. Rather, he's saying there are two paths and the salvation and rescue we need from God uh, Away from sin and death and judgment, it's only found on one. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? Losing your life will save it. Saving your life will lose it. We talked about the topsy-turvy kingdom of Jesus last uh, a week or two ago, didn't we? 
But at the end of the day, what Jesus is saying is, if you recognise me as God's Messiah, you'll give your life over to living under my rule, to living according to my word. You'll no longer follow the false gods of this life, the sort of gods that promise you everything now. Like what you can buy with your money or what other people think of you by what you do. False gods that promise security in the face of adversity. And yet while they promise much, they deliver little. But following the true God, uh, other people and serving them out of his service for us becomes what matters most. The people Jesus came to suffer and die and rise again for where you and I can use the time and talent and treasure God's given us in the service of them, in the service of each other. Whether it's the people we know, like those we live with or socialise with or work with or church with, and even those we don't, like those who are in our street or we meet in passing or even drive along the roads with. Jesus calls us not to use our life to look after ourselves but to lose our life in the service of others. For his part, he loses his life on his cross in order to save us so that we don't need to save ourselves, so that we don't need to shore up our security by what we buy or who we know. And there's a very important thread through these words. It's uh, that phrase, the son of man, he used it for himself in verse 22. He uses it again in verse 26. And it's an Old Testament image of the coming judge. And and you think about kings, kings rule, they, they judge and make decisions as well, don't they? You'll find this image in Daniel 7, whereby describing himself in this way and by the response that he'll ha- we will have based on our response to him, he's actually declaring that he is the judge of us all. Peter said Jesus was Christ. Jesus didn't deny it but leans into it. What about you? Who do you say Jesus is? We'll come back to that question again in a few minutes, but before we do, have a think about what the final episode we heard read says. Verse 28 to 36 uh, form the other bracket with the first verses, 18 to 21, at the beginning of today's passages. Uh, it's a bit like a sandwich. Uh, I think David mentioned a sandwich in a passage last week. Sorry if you're a bit hungry, haven't had breakfast yet. Uh, but uh, the first piece of bread was at the beginning. Uh, the the second piece of bread is here at the end and then there's the filling which is something different in the middle. Uh, This time though, uh, similar but different from the first piece of bread, rather than focusing on the Saviour's identity and mission, it picks up first on his mission and then identity. What happens? Jesus takes Peter, John and James up a mountain to pray And we read this from verse 29. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men 
Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Can you imagine being there? Uh, after the claims Jesus was making back on the road the week before and the confusion the disciples probably felt about this revelation of a suffering Messiah, uh, the suffering that they too could expect if they followed him. Here, it's like, it's like God pulling back the curtain of what can be seen to see what can't yet be seen but will be so Jesus disciples will know he is the real deal and who turns up well obviously Jesus is there at the center his appearance changes it is it has that sort of you know too bright to look at feel to it doesn't it you can imagine all the uh, the washing manufacturers they'd love to get a piece of this uh, And these great ones from the Old Testament are there, Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was reading this, I I started to think to myself, I wonder how they recognised who they were. Uh, Maybe Moses, you know know how we always imagine Moses, he's always walking around carrying two stone tablets uh, or looks like Charlton Heston, for those of you who have been around for a while. Uh, Elijah was probably wearing a leather belt and looking hairy, Uh, or had his chariot of fire parked nearby. Uh, But actually, how they recognise him doesn't really matter. Uh, Here are the two great ones of God's dealing with his people, and Jesus is standing in the midst of them, and he's their focus. What they talk about is really important too. Verse 31. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. There's another word we we could use for Jesus' departure, a word we know that is also the word in the original, and in fact I think our NIV translations have a little footnote of it. Read verse 31 again. They spoke about his, say it with me, his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. It is the same word that describes God's great rescue of his people out of Egypt. The one that foreshadowed what Jesus has been repeating in his actions in the episodes through these chapters of Luke. Jesus has come like Moses before him and God through him as through Moses before him is going to perform a great salvation a greater salvation of all who would be his disciple and follow him. And at this point of time, now it's just around the corner. When he arrives at Jerusalem and fulfills God's plans to which the law of Moses and the prophets like Elijah had pointed. That's why Jesus says uh, to those who are there that some of you will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come. Because it happens in Jerusalem. That's his mission. But how is this to confirm his identity? Uh, When God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he led them by a pillar of fire at night. 
and a cloud by day. And at Sinai, when he brought them to the mountain, he spoke to his new people. How did he do it? He descended as a cloud upon the mountain. And what happens here? On the top of the mountain, verse 34, while Jesus was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Divine identity confirmation. Uh, You can't get any higher authority than that, can you? Uh, Dare I mention the Optus hack that's happened in the last week or so that you can't avoid in the news. The great fear, of course, is that something like that means our information gets into the wrong hands. Our information could be used to impersonate us and do something, you know, take out a loan in our place or something like that. Do you think Peter, John and James were left in any doubt about whether Jesus was an impersonator trying to impersonate God's Messiah? What with the company he's keeping, with the voice from heaven confirming he is the chosen king and commanding them to listen to him? Now, someone might be sceptical. There's no doubt that this could be made up. And yet, we know Luke understood that. He didn't write this thinking people are so gullible they'll believe anything. He wrote this because, and he tells us this, he knew it was extraordinary, out of the ordinary, outside of people's experience, miraculous. That's why episode after episode he's shared the evidence. He's presented to the court of public assessment what Jesus said and did, what the apostles who were with him taught, so we can make our assessment for ourselves. And that's not to say either that it's going to be a vote, you know, by the numbers. It doesn't matter uh, what other people make of Jesus or how many the religious leaders, the Jews and Romans of Jesus' day, they made their vote by killing him rather than serving him. The question each of us now need to answer, though, on this side of his death and resurrection is who do we say he is? With the reality placed before us, with the events that took place in history publicly, with the reminder of Luke to show how Jesus carried out the mission and accomplished his mission. Who do you say Jesus is? God's Messiah. Your Lord. But we've been warned. If you accept him as your Lord, it will be costly. And also it won't be costly at all. What I mean is we'll need to take up our cross daily and deny ourselves for the one who denied himself for us. Yes. Putting others first. Losing our lives. Stepping away from those things in which we've been placing our security and our effort and our energy. 
getting to know Jesus better, will serve people as he served them, as he has served us. And yet what cost is that? When we will gain him, we will know him better and have the privilege to serve him and to live life as was always intended to be lived in sacrificial service of him. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Even though he was rejected, he is sometimes still rejected, of course, today. Don't be ashamed of Jesus because he suffered or because you as his follower, his disciple, might suffer even today. Don't be ashamed of Jesus because he seems too extraordinary for you not to be the scorn of your friends or community. Don't be ashamed of Jesus and he won't be ashamed of you when he comes as the powerful ruler over all, when each of us is judged by how we judged him. Name Jesus as God's Messiah, as your Messiah. And accept his summons today again to live for him. I'll lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we do thank you for the words that were first found on Peter's lips, uh, which we have heard again today that Jesus is your Messiah the one who rules over all, but does so by saving. Yes, he judges, but he saves people. For that we are so thankful. We are thankful that he has saved us. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, work in us by your Spirit, that we might not live for ourselves or live for the false gods that we use to replace the true God, that we might find our security in you, our hope in you, and cast our eyes to the privilege of being your children. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might so see your glory in Jesus, that others will see your glory as we follow him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.